Welcome to Warrior's Day Off, a podcast where we will share stories of life's unexpected struggles and conversations about the many faces of courage, strength, hope, and survival. So it's with an open heart and open mind and without judgment that we begin this experience together. I'm Jennifer Eby. Everyone has a story, and each is unique to their personal circumstances. At Warrior's Day Off, we are simply a place where guests and listeners can take a break from society's expectations or definition of what strong looks like, sounds like, and feels like. It's not our intention to provide medical or legal advice, nor to suggest that any one way is the right way. I'm inspired by these stories. Perhaps you will be too. Today's episode features David Dubin, a three-time cancer survivor, soccer enthusiast, and co-founder of Alive and Kickin', a Lynch Syndrome hereditary cancer advocacy organization. Alive and Kickin's mission is to improve the lives of individuals and families affected by Lynch syndrome and associated cancers through research, education, and screening. Joining us today to share his inspiring story of survival, hope, and advocacy is Dave Dubin. Welcome. Happy to be here. Dave, would you start us out with maybe take us back to the beginning when you were first diagnosed? I think you were in your late 20s, and then how that road led to everything you've learned about and are doing with Lynch syndrome. I'd be happy to do so. And yeah, once again, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my my uh, individual history with uh, with colon cancer and, and Lynch syndrome goes back to 1997, when many of our listeners are probably in grade school. Um, I uh, developed symptoms of uh, <clears throat> colorectal cancer, where your traditional symptoms are uh, feeling of cramping, blood in the stool. Um, you know, just uh, really, it was kind of surprising yet at the same at the same time it wasn't exactly shocking because there was a history of uh cancer specifically colorectal cancer in my family my father uh had it before me uh, in his 40s uh, my grandfather had it before him in his 60s um so it was it was already there so uh what wound up happening is at the time hmos had just started and i was uh, there was a what you would call the gatekeeper program back then, which was uh, trying to keep people away from specialists. So uh, I actually went to my primary care physician. Um, I had one and um, I was essentially, you know, sent back and said, it must be stress. It can't be colon cancer at this age. Um, it wasn't until six months later where I pressed the issue or more appropriately, my wife pressed the issue with uh, my primary care physician that I was sent to a specialist and GI doctor took one look at me and, and uh, did one basic test and said, you have colon cancer. So, um, you know, I, I had surgery, I had uh, six, which was at the time, uh, there was no laparoscopic surgery or it was just in infancy. So you, I was, you know, literally cut open like a tuna and, and, had my surgery with stage 3B, uh, ultimately had six months of chemotherapy. And then I kind of went on my way. Um, uh, you know, I, we had just had our first son. We had just gotten married. I uh, had the first house, all the things that lead up to stress. Um, 
but we moved on. I actually played soccer through chemotherapy. Uh, it was funny. You, you think about it now, uh, the guys I played with had no sympathy for me whatsoever. So I would go for chemo on Friday, Saturday, I recover Sunday, I'd be playing. And the guys are like, if you're on the pitch, you're playing. If you're not on the pitch, get off. Um, wow. So in, in retrospect, it was probably the best thing. And after six months, I was considered cancer-free, moved on, uh, still ran the business, still moved on with life. Um, a couple of years later, my uh, uh, older brother uh, developed his colon cancer. So he was 37 at the time. And uh, same thing, had his surgery, he moved on. Um, it kind of became the, the Dubin rite of passage. Um, it really wasn't until uh, the second colon cancer for me, which was uh, at age 40. So it was 10 years after my, my initial colon cancer, uh, after having annual colonoscopies and having them be clear, um, to develop the second colorectal cancer, literally, you know, 13 months after a clear colonoscopy, that's really when bells and whistles started going off. And, and we started talking about genetics, which, uh, ultimately led to, you know, Lynch syndrome and alive and kicking. But they did they know much about Lynch syndrome back then, or I mean, has the information changed in terms of what what they the research and what they know? So uh, it's a I would say very much a yes and a no. So Henry Lynch was working on his research going back to the eighties, uh, probably even earlier. So he had always uh, espoused that there was a hereditary genetic condition that was causing this. Uh, and ultimately that's what Lynch syndrome became named after him, but it really wasn't a discussion topic until the two thousands. Um, you know, BRCA came out uh, and started having becoming a, more of a conversation piece in the nineties and, and early 2000 Lynch syndrome took off. Uh, I, I don't, actually, I wouldn't, I would not say took off, became more well-known uh, starting in the two thousands. Um, but ultimately, Lynch syndrome is still very, very much an unknown, even though it is considered much more prevalent than than BRCA, um, which is really one of the reasons why we started Alive and Kicking. Uh, we looked at this, uh, what was taking place, and and if it was already a saturated market, so to speak, if, if Lynch syndrome was so well known already, we would not have started the foundation. But we looked around and we did not see an advocacy space for Lynch syndrome. And that's why we decided to, to form Alive and Kicking. And will you describe some of the work that you do with Alive and Kicking? Because I know that you have created this database uh, that is uh, patient-centric that's really fascinating and wonderful. Could you please describe it? Sure. So uh, a number of years ago, the Genetic Alliance, which is run by Sharon Terry, um, they created what was called the peer platform, which is a, a platform for uh, patients to upload their data and essentially share it. Uh, they set their own privacy settings. Um, it's really um, a model for trying to get research done and getting some real world data in from patients themselves. So we had the good fortune of uh, applying to and, and, and being accepted to be the Lynch syndrome registry with the Genetic Alliance. And that's really when everything changed because we started seeing patients uploading their data, sharing their privacy, sharing their data. I mean, it's, it's IRB approved. It's got, you know, privacy settings and uh, unequivocally 
Uh, I, I can't say 100%, but 99.9% of all the patients who have uploaded their data have indicated their willingness to share their data with researchers. And that's one of the benefits of it is uh, since everybody is consented and this is an IRB approved uh, system, it allows researchers to actually interact directly with patients um, and you know, have conversations about what the research is that patients actually want. Uh, and we have ultimately discovered Obviously, there, there's all the Lynch syndrome mutations, which of which there are several, but the number of a number and types of cancers that are coming out of this is really pretty eye-opening. It's not just your, it's not just colorectal cancer, it's not just endometrial cancer, but um, a number of different types, what ranging from the the gastrointestinal cancers as well as uh, the urologic cancers and the reproductive ones. So. Um, it's really what you need to move the needle when it comes to research as far as Lynch goes. When you say all these other cancers are coming out, are you talking, and is that still under the umbrella of Lynch or are there certain mutations that are different but all fall into the same category? Uh, it's, it's a yes and a yes. So, you know, um, the way I describe myself and, uh, and a number of Lynch syndrome patients do the same thing, which is, I describe myself as a Lynch syndrome patient who happens to have had colon cancer twice and a kidney cancer. Um, but ultimately, since it's a germline mutation, it can affect a number of different locations within the body. And that's what's the important thing to, that, that that's what I consider to be the important takeaway out of all this. Um, many, you know, you, you, in, in the cancer world, you're typically it's it's broken out by the location. So you'll have a, a you know a colon cancer organization or a uh, or a ovarian cancer organization. Whatever you know, you get my point. Um, what we try and espouse is that uh, since Lynch syndrome is a germline mutation and it can affect any part of the body, not any part, but you know the statistics are are out there that there are certain prevalences. Obviously, colorectal and endometrial being the highest, but it can affect stomach cancer, um, bladder cancer, obviously kidney cancer, uh, ovarian, um, the, the list does go on uh, to a point we've actually seen, you know, uh, brain cancer as well as lung cancer um, and even breast cancer. So there's a lot of studying that still needs to be done. And um, the more, as more time goes on, we're discovering more and more opportunities for cancer prevention and or, and or um, you know, uh, cancer reduction once you develop cancer, hopefully at a very early age. I was stunned by the statistics that I read on your website. Uh, I think it was something about one in 279 individuals test positive for Lynch and 95% of them don't know they have it. I mean, I don't know if that's an old number, if there's something updated, but... I found that stunning. It actually is stunning. Um, so it's not that one in 279 Americans um, test positive for Lynch. It's that one in, it is estimated that one in 279 Americans has a Lynch mutation, uh, but 95% don't know about it. So uh, what our goal, one of our goals as Alive and Kick and, and, and myself and, and being out there in, the, in front and center is to make sure that others find out about their Lynch syndrome mutation before they get cancer, because again, it can affect you at a very young age. Um, and that's not what you want. You, the goal is to know you have a mutation ahead of time so that you can, you know, it, you know, it, uh, 
integrate the screening mechanisms so that you're either preventing and or catching something at a very young stage, uh, early stage. What sort of tests would we have to determine whether or not we are one of those one in 279 people? Well, that's one of the beauties of, of technology. Um, a, a simple blood or saliva uh, test, a DNA, is, can indicate whether you are, are test positive or negative. Um, it's pretty, it, it's relatively cut and dry, relatively. Uh, it's gotten significantly better. Um, to give you an example, uh, you know, back when I had my testing in 2007, um, the cost was somewhere in the neighborhood of $15,000. And the, the size of the panel that was done on me was pretty limited. So you had maybe, you know, you had your BRCA genes, you had your Lynch genes, maybe you had a few others, a handful. Um, nowadays, because of technology and because of the knowledge base that's out there, you can do a panel with 60, 70, 90 genes on it. And of course, including the, the ones that are very prevalent like the BRCA and Lynch. And it could cost a couple of hundred dollars. So in the off chance you either don't have insurance or are underinsured or just don't want to go through insurance, you could literally get it done for uh, for a few hundred dollars and you can have your results in a week as opposed to back in 2007 when it took as much as three months to get results. When you do a genetic test, you're, you're looking for certain uh, mutations within the proteins, so or typically. So uh, it's going to either be there or it's not. Uh, it, you know, again, there are variants of unknown significance, otherwise known as VUSs. But um, for the most part, again, for the most part, I'm not saying 100%. Um, there, it's pretty cut and try as to whether or not someone is going to have a mutation that's listed on that panel. The technology has gotten so good that you do you do get an answer pretty straightforward. Is this information also available when somebody does like 23andMe? The answer is sort of. If someone is looking for a hereditary cancer answer, it is recommended that you use a, a CLIA-approved lab, an, a, an, a lab that's going to give you results and based upon what they're looking for. So there are a number of laboratories out there that are doing hereditary cancer testing. They specialize in that. That's what they focus on. Um, when you do a, a direct-to-consumer testing, like, a, like an Ancestry or a 23andMe, they uh, may, in fact, run those tests uh, but they're not going to report out on all those tests. To give you an example on, on BRCA, just let's take that as an example. There are thousands of BRCA mutations within the BRCA mutation itself. Typically, at, uh, 23andMe, if I'm not mistaken, they report out on only three. So what can happen is you can get a, a false sense of security thinking, all right, I tested negative for those three BRCA mutations. Most people uh, don't know that there are 997 more, or you know what the exact number is. So they, don't, they think they're in the clear when in fact they may not be. Um, and, 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 and I'm not knocking 23andMe, that's by no means uh, my goal here. Uh, I think what they've done in actually opening up the genetic testing market has been a good thing for, uh, for the consumer as well as those in the Lynch syndrome space because it, it, it gets people thinking about it. And by thinking about it more, they can be more proactive in their care. But also, I mean, to, to segue it back to, you know, back to 2000 when I went in seven and even earlier when I had my testing, um, 
since BRCA was really the name back then uh, and the mutation that everyone had a, an idea, um, a number of people were tested for BRCA one and two only, right? Uh, but just imagine that, you know, you, you can have it, but you, you test for that and that's a limited panel because that was the technology back then and it was expensive, but then you develop cancer a number of years later and you think to yourself, wait a minute, I tested negative. And then you realize you could have been tested on a big, you know, you can, or should be get tested on a bigger panel, um, later in the state. And, and I'm seeing a lot of that. I don't want to say a lot, but I'm seeing it more and more where people were tested on a limited panel and then they come back uh, with cancer and or test positive for something else later on. I mean, somebody once said to me, you know, the thing about finding out you're doing genetic testing is that just because you test positively doesn't mean you're going to get cancer. And also just because you test negatively doesn't mean you won't. And I thought that was an interesting conversation. I mean, do you find that to be true? Or if you test positive, the key is get screened. So if you are positive, you can do something about it early. Is that the real advantage of testing and finding out? It really is. Uh, and it's not just for, your, for, for you, it's, it's for your family. Uh, because of cascade screening, you can now, if, if somebody has a mutation, uh, and I still call it a mutation. It's supposed to be called a variant. I know, um, and I also call it BRCA because I've been yelled at for calling it BRCA. Oh, uh, good to know. Thanks. But that's me. Okay. Not everyone. I, I get yelled at for everything, so I, that's all right. I'm used to it. Um, it's part of being a parent. <laughs> the um, no, um, but you know, it, you know, when you if you if you test positive for a mutation, um, and the rest of your family uh, gets tested, and you can prevent you know, them from going through what you may have gone through, um, then that, that's really what, what it's all about. Um, as you alluded to, having a mutation does not necessarily mean you're going to get cancers. There are certain cancer, there are certain mutations that it is 100%. So FAP, which is, a, I believe, the APC mutation, it literally is 100% chance of developing colorectal cancer. So it's one of those things where if you test positive for the mutation, Many times you'll have your entire colon removed at a very young age, probably sometimes b before puberty. So, you know, that all withstanding, uh, for the most part, you, you look at uh, a Lynch or BRCA or check two or, or a number of the other ones, the statistics are there that show, okay, there's an 80% chance, 60% chance, 20% chance, whatever the number is, um, of developing a cancer. And, and, and again, usually in certain locations, but not always. So yes, the statistics are there. Is it doesn't mean is going to get cancer? No. Um, we've seen, uh, when I say we, I'll say I will. Uh, I've seen families where uh, they all have, you know, a number of people will have the same mutation, four out of five siblings, you know, one out of five, whatever the number is. And you'll see that uh, one sibling will develop cancer early. You'll see maybe another sibling will get cancer at a later date. And you'll see another sibling that may never get cancer at all, regardless of the screening and regardless of anything else that happens. Um, yeah. Genetics is wonderful. Do you find, do you find that there's a fear factor, um, involved with testing your children and your family members, uh, about it? I would say there is 
always a fear factor for yourself as well as your family. I've seen it where people just say, I just don't want to know. And okay. Uh, you kind of shake your head and you kind of move on. But um, to, if you know you have a mutation and you don't share that with family, uh, especially your, uh, your children, it's, I think you're doing them a disservice by, by not doing so. Um, if you have the opportunity to have some knowledge and be preventative in your care in your life, uh, I think it's incumbent on you to do so. So at what age would you recommend we start screening in general and also with our children? So it's a two-sided question. I'll, I'll put it, you know, um, with let's in just talking about Lynch syndrome again, and in, in talking about most mutations, they are typically adult onset. So um, with the exception of, of things like APC, where FAP come, will, will, can happen at a very young age, um, it is typically recommended that you wait until after they turn 18. And, and for two reasons, one, again, for the most part, it's adult onset for the most part, uh, but also it, uh, ha your kids are, will be adults by then and considered, uh, having the ability to make their own decisions. Um, I see it all the time where parents, um, are concerned that they want to test their kids as minors, um, sometimes without them knowing about it. Uh, and you can do that as parents, um, but uh, we, we typically, uh, I typically don't recommend it because, you know, what do you do? Let's say you, uh, you find out something positive or let, let's say you find out something positive. Do you tell them and let them know that you've tested them without their consent? Or do you wait until after they're 18 to see if they'll do it anyway? Um, it, it's really, uh, it's really rolling the dice. And they, again, we, I, I've always taken the position that it's worth waiting until they're 18. It's their decision. They feel empowered by doing so. And um, it, it just works out easier. The, um, the second movement, again, I, you know, since I work in the genetic space, I see this is there's a, a movement towards testing newborns because again, this is a germline mutation and you're literally born with it. So, you know, you know, you, there are a number of societies, uh, you know, in the process of discussing, you know, what do we do with newborns? You know, we, we've all done the, 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 the heel prick um, for every newborn anyway. Uh, should we be checking for a number of different things, including, let's say, Lynch syndrome or, or you know, other hereditary cancers? Um, but that opens up a, uh, a really the, the next can of worms, which is really the, uh, the component of discrimination, which, uh, it, which comes into play when it comes for life insurance or long-term care insurance. Um, I will be the first to admit that I, I learned the hard way that uh, you, should, you, know, you should order life insurance before you get genetic testing, because uh, we went through this with our uh, oldest. Um, we did not, and he came back positive. And once that happened, his, his life insurance is very expensive. Um, now I don't mind being, uh, considered high risk. Uh, I'll be the first to admit it, but at the same time, I also do steps to mitigate this. Uh, I do, uh, I do try and keep a, a pretty good exercise regimen and try and keep my weight in, 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 in track. Um, I don't smoke. Um, I rarely drink. And uh, because of that, my life insurance should be less expensive or, or at least reduced 
to more of a normal number, but we're not at that point yet. So, um, yeah, I think that was a long-winded way of answering uh, kind of where we stand as far as uh, when and, and at what ages. I, I love when I read that you've said, my genes don't define me. That's, that's awesome. I was I I, my, I wanted to name the t the name of this episode. My genes don't define me. Soccer does. I don't know if that's still accurate. Well, you know, when I turned fifty, uh, it just became a little bit <laughs> little bit more difficult to keep playing. I still love the game, but uh, it was just so long to recover. Um, you know, stuff starts falling off when you get into your fifties. So, you know, I. Um, and, and I'm kind of proud of that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the back pain and the knee pain. Uh, I've earned it. Uh, I'm happy to be here at, at, at the ripe old age of 54, soon to turn 55. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, I still love the game, still watch it. Uh, the boys have aged out, so I don't coach them anymore. So 25 years of coaching, 45 years of playing. Um, I'm done. <laughs> um, I just watch. Yeah. The other thing I know that uh, I, I believe I saw that you're involved with is Immerman Angels, and I know Johnny Immerman. I've met him. Uh, would you tell the audience a little bit about this organization, what you've been doing with them? So Immerman Angels is essentially like a, a funnel for a number of different types of cancer, not just Lynch and, and not just anything. And they uh, and they they hook you up with somebody who's been there uh, and done that, and it's really worked out very well. Um, you know, and again, in the, in the Lynch syndrome space, you could be a cancer survivor, but also you could be what can, what can be considered a, a cancer previvor, which is, you know, someone who has a mutation but hasn't had cancer yet. So uh, it brings on a different nuance to it than just uh, someone who's had the cancer. What's going on with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the, is it PREMM5 uh, prediction model? What, what is that? So uh, there are a number of predict prediction models out there. Dana-Farber ha has created something called PREM5, which is essentially a series of questions that would be asked of a patient, uh, again, someone who may not have had cancer, that would, based upon the answers to those questions and, and the algorithm that's created, can predict uh, whether or not someone would be a good candidate for genetic testing to see if they would benefit from, well, to see if they have like a mutation. So, um, and again, there are a number of different models out there. It's not just Prem5. There, there are, you know, companies that have been created around this. Essentially, you know, it, it asks you the family history. Do you have a family history of uh, a gynecological cancer? Uh, yes, no. Uh, at a young age, yes, no, that sort of thing. Same with uh, gastrointestinal cancers, yes, no, uh, young age. And all this thing goes, gets you know, pulled together and uh, out comes out a predictor as to whether or not you could benefit from, let's say, a hereditary cancer uh, testing. Uh, and if so, which ones? Um, but again, since panels have become so prevalent, you can, you can really you know, shoot for the moon and, and try and you know, buckshot it if you don't know what the mutation is already. Dana-Farber itself has launched a Lynch syndrome center where they, uh, you know, they house uh, a number of different specialists together so that they're working as a team in, in managing a Lynch syndrome uh, cancer and or family. Uh, because again, there are a number of different types of cancers that can come from it um, and a number of different screening methodologies and, and trying to keep track of it all. 
uh, is a full-time job in and of itself. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you would like to share? So the one of the big takeaways uh, about Lynch syndrome is the immunotherapy world. So a number of years ago, um, Keytruda and and uh, and was FDA approved. Uh, I think it's called pembrolizumab uh, for treating uh, MSI high tumors, um, regardless of the location within the body, and. It was really groundbreaking, um, and especially in the Lynch syndrome world, because um, Lynch syndrome, um, the the hallmark, if you will, for Lynch syndrome cancers are MSI high, uh, microsatellite instability. I joke that microsatellite instability was my nickname in college, but unfortunately, it didn't fit very well on the soccer jersey, so I had to stick with Dave. Um, but you know, if knowing the genetic mutation of not only knowing your germline, but also knowing the genetic uh, makeup of your type of cancer is really where precision medicine is going. So if you know that your tumor or that the tumors that you potentially create uh, are microsatellite instable high, then you can take steps to let's uh, to mitigate that. But one of the big things is really looking into the the benefit of uh, immunotherapy, either as a first-line treatment or in conjunction uh, for treatment, um, it's really been game-changing. So that would be a, a real takeaway for understanding if you have a germline mutation, such as a Lynch syndrome, um, because uh, if you develop cancer, you know you'll be treated, or you you can have that conversation about how you should be treated before you get treated. And it, it's really, uh, again, uh, I, I've seen some really good results from it. And, and, and it just continues to build on it. The more technology and the more data that's created, it's really continuing to grow on it. And then my only other takeaway would be, um, I, I sometimes apologize for making this look easy. Um, you know, I, I feel very blessed that um, you know, I, I've I've had this life, and that that it's continuing, um, and I, I like to think that I'm setting a good example for others, not just in the Lynch syndrome space, but in the, in the space in, in any space overall. So you know, again, I feel very fortunate. Uh, I just hope it doesn't come across as looking like uh, I'm a little too proud, but you know, so far so good. Well, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your personal story with us. And if, if, uh, the listeners want to learn more alive and kicking K I C K N.org, uh, if they want to learn more about your organization and Lynch syndrome, it's a great, great place for them to start. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Special thanks to my friends who made this podcast possible today and to the listeners out there. Thanks for giving me a chance and for your time. I find inspiring stories are all around. You just have to tune in. Thanks for joining us today at Warrior's Day Off. This is Jen Eby. You got this.